The Missouri, she's a mighty river. Away, rolling river. The red man's camp lies on her borders. Away, we're bound away across the wide. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing, drawing my materials from the wonderful collection of American writing, the Library of America. Now, currently, we are going through a series on Melville's middle to later novels, specifically looking at Redburn, uh, White Jacket, and Moby Dick, but we'll probably follow that up with Pierre and the Confidence Man and the stories as well. So we're going to run right through all of Melville over the next uh, couple months. So we just finished up with Redburn, uh, a great novel about based on one of Melville's first voyages, a transatlantic voyage to London and, and back to New York. We dealt a lot with uh, Kind of the global capitalist economy, the movement of commodities and the movement of people, and then the residual effects of the emerging capitalist system. And it's also a, a, a nice fish out of water coming of age tale in a lot of ways as well. Uh, a nice little social history of, of the merchant ship. In White Jacket, his follow, follow-up novel, which, which kind of pairs with Redburn nicely, it's also very much based on Melville's own experiences. Now after his events as a whaler, in the Pacific, he served for a while on an American naval ship, a military ship, and and took that back. So he spent, I think, about a year and a half. And that those experiences are pulled from quite directly as Melville wrote wrote White Jacket. White Jacket, it's it is a novel. It is fictionalized, but it's also very much kind of an ex- it reads like an expose. So it's a lightly or reads like a lightly fictionalized uh, account of his own experiences. Like if you, it feels like, like if you read uh, Two Years uh, Before the Mass, which we'll get to at some point in this podcast, I'm sure, by Richard Henry Dana. It's actually mentioned at one point in, I think it's in White Jacket, or, yeah, or Redburn, but I think it's in White Jacket. He mentions it as a, as a text that people should read. In that, in that book, you just have kind of like uh, chapter by chapter expose of the different aspects of life on, on the ship. And that's kind of what White Jacket is. It's not really, there's not much story, even less of a story than there is in Redburn. Essentially what happens in White Jacket is after some period of time on, a, on this naval ship, it's a frigate called the Neversink, they're just traveling back from the Pacific to home. And so they cross Cape Horn, they stop for a while in Rio de Janeiro, and then they just come back. And so it's, it's just about the things that happen to him, like the little slices of life. It's not always chronological. A lot of chapters just deal with special topics, like you know, there's a chapter on grog, there's a few chapters on flogging, you know, the whipping of, of sailors, uh, extrajudicial punishment that's commonly done there. There's things about the types of sailors, about the command structure, and so you can almost read this as like a non-fiction uh, journalistic reportage on, on you know, serve, what's it like to serve on an American military naval ship in the 19th century. So if, if you're reading this looking for an adventure story, you're not going to get it. Um, 
We're going to read Moby Dick next, of course, we don't have Hazard, but nevertheless, however you read White Jacket as a novel or as more of a reportage, it does have a lot of interesting things to tell us, and I do think it's a good place to go. I, in fact, I can't think of any book that does a better job of showing you what life would have been like on a merchant, uh, not a merchant ship, um, a naval ship at that, at that time. Right, and it pairs nicely with Redburn. Like in Redburn, you're on a ship that's job it is to move people. There's very few sailors on it, you know, just a bare bones, right? It's a commercial enterprise. They keep just as many people as, as they need. The military ship, of course, is, it has 500-some people on it. And you need people who can shoot cannons. You need people who can, you know, run the ship. The ship's bigger, of course, than a lot of these merchant ships. You know, there's Marines on it. There's a whole different command structure. So, you know, reading Redfern and White Jacket kind of back to back can give us a nice look at, at two aspects of, of the American presence at sea in the United So, White Jacket was written in, written in, uh, well, published in 1850. So I think it was written around that time, too. It's part of that three year period where, where Melville wrote Redfern, White Jacket. Moby Dick, so three of his major, major novels. And these will be, be the last sea fiction he's, he's going to publish in his lifetime. He will, of course, write, write Billy Budd, but that won't be published till, till after his, his death. So it's, it's written right on the aftermath of, of, of Redburn. And this book has a lot of historical significance in that it did kind of peak the kind of the public interest in, uh, in life on naval ships. It's very much of the reform era, and there's a lot of writers who are like exposing various ills, whether it's in the city and the, the poor laws in the cities, or conditions on the plantations in the south. A lot of reform efforts are trying to fix these aspects of, of life, and I think Melville in this novel fits into that tradition. His critiques in like Redburn and even in type PR, a little bit more macro. They're, they're really about kind of the global system that's emerged, whether it's the missionary system or empire or capitalism. His critiques in White Jacket are much more focused and addressable, and so they do come off as things that can be reformed. So especially when he's talking about flogging, it's, it's really clear he's got a, you know, a policy position, a specific policy position that he thinks can address the problem of flogging. So it's more direct that way than some of his other novels which get more grandiose. Nevertheless, I think White Jacket does, like his, his other novels, try to present the merchant ship as a microcosm of the larger world, right? So you have like corrupt leaders, you have working people get exploited and beat on. Uh, you have kind of a working class solidarity in contrast to the indifference of the bosses. You have uh, incompetence among the, the elite, in this case the captains of the ship. Um, and in a lot of other ways, you just have the ship kind of presented as a microcosm of the whole capitalist system that's emerging. So he doesn't get away from that, but I do think at the same time he's making very specific policy suggestions about how life can be improved on, on these military ships for the, for the men who serve. And it did lead to a debate about flogging and eventually the, the prohibition of flogging on American military ships. So that's one I guess, success of this particular book. Uh, a lot of his other critiques, though, weren't really addressed. So it, it kind of, I thought a lot about the jungle in this way, right? So the jungle, you have a critique of wage slavery and, and the mistreatment of immigrants. But the novel also explores like poor 
health conditions on in the factories, and that's what got addressed in law. But the other stuff he wrote about didn't. You know, he was actually disappointed that that's what people focused on. They focused on like how gross the fact the factory farms were, or the, the meatpacking plants. Sorry, he, he focused on gross gross they were, all the rats and rotting food and things like that. And that led to policies. But when he talked about the suffering of, of Yurgis, you know, that stuff doesn't really get um, the same attention. So, you know, that, it, but it did lead to, it helped lead to a reform of, of flogging laws. So that, that's uh, an important achievement of, of this book. So anyways, um, I'm going to take, I'm going to do four episodes on this. The book's about 400 pages long. So I'm going to jump right in and, and see what I want to say about it. It's, it's rather, um, it's long. There's a lot of chapters. There's something like almost 100 chapters in this book, maybe 90 something. So a lot of short chapters. We're used to that in, in Melville. I think Moby Dick has more than 100 chapters. So that, that's just the way he wrote at the time. So I'm not necessarily going to go chapter by chapter because that would take too long, but I am going to, to give a brief summary of the main points he, he highlights in, in each part of the book. Again, this is not really a, there's not much of a plot to go through. So it's more like our job here, I think, is to just highlight what are his main critiques and, and observations about life on a man of war. So we, we start with an introduction to the jacket, the, the titular white jacket. This is just referring to the narrator's clothes, essentially. And this is the jacket he made himself. And it's white. It's not waterproof. The way I guess they waterproofed these jackets was just by painting over them. And he wanted to do that, but he couldn't get any access to paint. So he's left with this white um, jacket. And it's, it's, it makes him very visible on the ship, which causes him a lot of problems throughout his voyage. It becomes kind of his nemesis. Also because when it, it's not waterproof, so whenever it rains, he gets soaked. So he's... It's a cause of a lot of his misery during this, during this his his work on the ship. So of course we get the the color white, and this is going to be a major theme in Moby Dick. Now for Melville, especially in Moby Dick, whiteness whiteness is a kind of malevolent color, right? Of course Moby Dick is the white whale, and it's described of kind of this this blankness, this kind of emptiness. And there's one moment in White Jacket in this in this book where he's he's kind of taken for a ghost at one point and and he nearly gets injured because of that. So uh, that is that's how where we start. And this is one of the major elements that if there's a plot to this novel, it's really about the fate of, of this of this white jacket and how the white the whiteness of this jacket affects his experiences. It makes him stand out. It makes him always wet because it's not waterproofed, and it's just a source of, of frustration for him. Of course, it's a necessary evil, um, as they're especially when they cross Cape Horn because it's, it's cold and wintry for much of the voyage. There's even a moment where everyone gets kind of snowed on, and then he makes the comment that everyone has white jackets at that point because of because of all the the snow. So, despite it making itself, it ends up being a very ineffectual jacket, just one he has he's stuck with. Um, the ship, of course, is is homeward bound. It's preparing to go home, and that's that's the story we we have. Is just the ship returning to to the east coast. It's going to cross Cape Horn, 
you know, this before the Panama Canal, so they have to cross Cape Horn, which is a dangerous travel, and, you know, just get to there. It's not, there's no battles, there's no fighting, it's not during wartime, so it's just a peacetime naval vessel making its, its return, return voyage. Now, the white jacket is going to also refer to the narrator. I, I don't think, we never get really a name for him, so he just refers to himself when he does give himself a name. It's, it's just white jacket. So white jacket may refer to the jacket itself, but often it refers to him, and I think that's how he's talked about by, by crew members and by the officers. He's just pointing out his, his white jacket. In fact, because he's so visible, he often gets like that extra work because, you know, the captain needs someone to just point to the guy they see, the, most, the one that kind of sticks out. So that's part of his, the plight he has. The, the opening scene is where they're unfolding the, the sails to get ready to, to go home, and he's on top of the, the mainstay. I think it's the... Yeah, where it's on the main royal mast, and he's on, you know, helping release that sail, and he's like a white albatross on top of the, on top of the mast. So it's kind of a cool, cool symbolism. Now, he gets right away into the crew. He, he doesn't jump into the hierarchy yet. He, he wants to talk and he wants to dwell on the, the nature of the crew itself and its, its divisions, right? Because this is a much bigger operation than those merchant ships. A merchant ship, like a packet ship or some of these small brigs or even schooners that would kind of do trade, tended not to have many people, you know. 15, 20, maybe with officers, maybe at most 20, right? They, they, can't, they t tended to run fairly bare-boned. Uh, and you get that sense even in Redburn that, that you know, there, there weren't a lot of sailors on these. Military vessels, of course, they're, they're ships of war. They, they have a lot more things that have to be done. They're much bigger. They have, of course, cannons, and they need marines and stuff. So it's just more people. It's got a more complex division of labor, and it's got a more complex command structure. Now in this chapter, this is chapter three in the book, he's going to focus on the divisions in the crew. And the important thing is it really runs like a smooth machine. That's what Melville says. It's everyone has their place, everyone has their things they need to do. Um, and this division is kind of functions without the hierarchy. And I think it's interesting. He doesn't start with the captain and work his way down. Like maybe we could think of a traditional Another writer may have started that way, right? Like, we start with the Commodore, then we have the captains, then we have the officers, and then eventually you get down to the common seamen. He, he inverts that, and he starts with the masses of the common seamen, kind of working without the need for oversight. It's, it's really a, a case of the workmen's, or the manager's brains being under the workmen's cap, which we see in a lot of labor history from the 19th century, but it seems to be true here as well. Now we do meet an important character. Remember in Redburn, it was Jackson was kind of the main sailor, except for the narrator that, that we met, and he was sort of a villainous character. In White Jacket, one of the main second like other sailors besides the narrator that we that we meet is, and we meet a lot of them throughout the, the course of the story. There's of course a lot of people on the ship to potentially meet, but. Uh, and that's Jack Chase. Jack Chase is the one we meet here. And he's sort of the opposite of, of Jackson. Jackson, remember, he would get his authority through bullying and, and pushing around the, the people, not under him, but his, his kind of comrades. He kind of rose out of his will. Jack Chase is British, and he's just loved by the, by the, the crew. Um, he's educated but mostly self-taught. He, he reads literature and poetry. Um, 
he's also an educator. He's someone who teaches other members of the crew how to do things. Again, we, we see kind of the, 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 the unnecessary nature of the command structure for most of the day-to-day -day running of the ship anyways. Maybe in a battle they have a function, but they're, they're just seen to be kind of sitting around not really contributing that much. It's more like people like Jack Chase are actually doing the work of training and educating people on, on the ship. So he's an educator. Um, he also he did hate whalers though, so he's not entirely a, a beneficent character. He does seem to have a, a, a chip on his shoulder about whalers, which is kind of interesting. Because um, you know, of course, Melville will write about the whalers in the next his next book, Moby Dick. But uh, he's you know he shows up once in a while, Jack Chase, and he's mentioned. He you know we don't really see that much of of what he does. I mean, the, the, the novel itself is so episodic and it's so like looking at different aspects. So we don't really get to like follow Jack Chase on too many adventures. Um, chapter five, though, we do get a story about him, about how once he deserted from uh, an, an American ship to actually fight. Yeah, he's fighting for like Peruvian independence or, or in some conflict with Peru and he just he, he, th he would, thought it was a worthy cause to fight for so he abandoned his American ship and went to fight for Peru and then he he eventually gets captured and, and is forced back into an American uniform and the point here seems to be just how honorable and committed to causes um, Jack Chase is and that's partially his his uh, part of his part of his character and part of the reason people like him it does interestingly talk about desertion at some point here because the reason people deserted from these sh um, these ships um, well here's here's what Melville writes and it, and it gets to the question of broader the broader question of desertion quote but with what purpose had he deserted to avoid naval discipline to riot in some abandoned seaport for love of some worthless signorita not at all he abandoned the frigate from high far higher and nobler nay glorious motives Though bowing to naval discipline afloat, yet assure he was a stickler for the rights of man and the liberties of the world. He went to draw a partisan blade in the civil uh, commotions of Peru and befriend heart and soul what he deemed the cause of the right, end quote. We don't get the whole details. Maybe readers at the time would have been more up on the news of, of what was going on in Peru around that time, but um, I'm not quite sure. I have to look up the, the actual history. Okay, so this is how we get our introduction to the crew. And that's where Melville starts, that it's a divided crew, it's a well-oiled machine. There's like a natural kind of leadership that comes from below uh, through morally upright and brave and, and, and principled people like Jack Chase. It's then that we get to the officers, and he starts here from the top and goes down to the officers. And he's, this is, we have a, at the top of this particular command structure, we have a Commodore. A Commodore, as, as you may know, if you don't, I'll just quickly tell you this is an informal rank that comes about when, when a captain is usually in charge of, of several ships, a flotilla, you know, maybe for whatever purpose, right? So if you have like three ships that are on a mission and you don't have like an admiral to command it, one of the captains might get the position of commodore, right? Now, this is something that afterwards they'll carry on that title. It's kind of like a lifelong badge of honor from that point on. So you can be called commodore in you know, in public or whatever. But it's, it's basically, you're, you're still a captain um, from within military ranks, so it's, you're not like a, it's not like a promotion to admiral. 
Yeah, but there's a Commodore on this ship, the, the Neversink. Under that, you have captains and then lieutenants, and then you have a bunch of, of petty officers, right? There's even like a chief executive officer. So there's a much more complex command structure than you have on the merchant ships where you just have like a master, maybe you could call him a captain, if you will, but not to be confused, military rank, we can just call them a master. And then below them, you'd have, you know, maybe a mate or two, right? One for each watch. And that might be all you would have for, for officers. You might have a, like a bosun or something like that. But the, the structure here is much more complex because, of course, you have 500 men and it's a, it's a military ship. So, again, Melville is starting from the bottom and then working to the top in his description of life on the ship. And his, at the very top of the Commodore, we, we were given an image of someone really with a BS job, someone who doesn't really have anything to do. Because the ship runs on its own logic, there's other officers to do a lot of the actual commanding work. So the Commodore just kind of walks around on the deck looking Commodore-ish, but that's, he doesn't really do that much. Um, next, we talk about uh, food, um, dinner, supper, and we get an interesting thing here, how food is related to hierarchy and enforcing hierarchy. And that's a thing that comes up again and again in this novel is the enforcement of the lines of hierarchy again and again on the ship. How it works here is like the sailors eat first at noon for lunch, and then as you get higher in rank, you eat later and later. So the actually the Commodore and the Captain, they're eating lunch like at four, four or five. And Melville gets a bit of joke out of this because he thinks it's more healthy to eat lunch at the proper time, and that sailors get that, that benefit. But it's in some other way of enforcing hierarchy. You don't eat with the people under you. Now, just like he went from the general crew to talk about um, Jack Chase. He goes from the general officer corps to talk about two particular lieutenants and he contrasts them and he, he basically shows that they, they run the gambit of abilities and skills and temperaments. So the one we have is Salvagi. He's named after actually some a technology on the ships called the, the Salvage, which is used for something for the rigging. Now, he is a lieutenant who has a lot of bravado. He overstates and over, overstretches his own skills. He's the subject of a lot of public jeering. He's not really respected by the crew because he doesn't really have the, the ability. On the other one, we're, meant, we're introduced to is a man named Matt Jack, who is actually more loved by the sailors, but he's a drinker. He's a true Jack, is how he's described by Melville. He's a bit of a tyrant, but because he has natural skill, because he is experienced, and because he doesn't overstate his ability, he get, he's more respected by, by the crew. So that's kind of his, that's the first eight chapters. A lot of it is focused on the, the structure of the ship and the hierarchy of the ship. And then at, throughout this novel, we're just going to get different uh, slices of life and different special topics um, as, as we read on. For instance, chapters 9 and 10 are about the pockets and the importance of pockets on, on, the, on the ship because sailors have to carry what they have basically with them. It's not really, they can't leave it in the hammock. They don't have a lot of space. They don't have a lot of private space to hide stuff. So that without lockers, you have to basically keep stuff in your pockets. There's also, though, the threat of pickpocketing on the ship with all those people, and that's something you have to watch out for. Um, we learn that, then we get a lot into like what sailors do in their time off, and we get a nice little chapter about called The Pursuit of Poetry Under Difficulties. 
which is actually about the you know the fact that some of these sailors were poets and quite impressive poets and, and Melville describes a couple of them even Jack Chase could write poetry this guy uh, Keown Lemsford's another these are people who these are sailors described in the in the text that are capable of writing actual real poetry and it's I, I'm guessing these are drawn from from life Melville's own experiences on the ship and he would have known good poetry of course being of, of a literary mind himself so um, I don't know just just moving ahead there's a, there's a lot of good stuff here there's a, a character that Melville describes as a hermit in a mob named Nord who uh, is kind of a romantic and Not really a sailor. I mean, I guess what we're getting here is just like all the different types that come together on a ship like this and, and how they kind of form an ecosystem. Um, I don't think he ever uses a word like that if I don't think it would have been available to him, but you get the sense of the ship functioning like, like a bit of an ecosystem where everyone has their place and it's really based on diversity, right? So, you know, nature abhors homogeneity, right? And it's kind of like that on the well, the well-functioning ship has this diversity. And, and Nord is an example of someone who maybe doesn't fit the stereotype of, of the sailor, but he has a place on the ship. Quote, the man was a marvel. He amazed me as much as Coolridge did the troopers among whom he enlisted. What could have induced such a man to enter a man of war? All of my sapiens could not fathom. And how he managed to preserve his dignity as he did among such a rabble rout was equally a mystery. For he was no sailor, as ignorant of a ship indeed as a man from the sources of the Niger. Yet the officers respected him, and the men were afraid of him. This much was observable, however, that he faithfully discharged whatever special duties devolved upon him, and was so fortunate as never to render himself liable to a reprimand. Doubtless he took the same view of the thing that another of the crew did, and he easily resolved so to conduct himself as to never to run the risk of the scourge. And this might have been added to whatever incommunicable grief which might have been his that made this Nord such a wandering recluse, even among our man-of-war mob. Nor could he have long swung his hammock on board ere he would have found that to, his, to ensure his exemption from the thing which alone affrighted him. He must be content for the most part to turn a man-hater and social expatriate himself from many things, which might have rendered the situation more tolerable. Still more, several events which took place might, must have horrified him at, at times with the thought that, however he might isolate and entomb himself, yet for all this, the improbability of his being overtaken by what he had most stretched never advanced to the infallibility of the impossible." All this is essentially saying is that he's, he's a loner and a bit of a recluse, a hermit on board this ship full of 500 men. Well, I suppose in any situation where you have a lot of people in one space together, the majority are going to be extroverted and engaging socially, and then there's always going to be others who don't. I'm, I'm sure prison is, has that same kind of dynamic. Now we get to Grog in chapter 14, and it's actually called A Drought in a Man of War. And first we're introduced to the importance of Grog. Now it seems like you could get Grog, a daily Grog allowance. If you didn't want that, you would get like an extra pay. But most people took the Grog ration. And the Grog starts to run out though, and this is presented as a major tragedy. and a major, and it actually starts to cause a lot of grumbling among the crew. This is going to come back later when, and I'll talk about this in the next episode, where we come up with the issue of flogging. Because Melville seems to think that just taking away grog would be a more effective punishment than, than flogging. So this is kind of sowing that seed of that, that conclusion he's going to draw later on. 
we're told a little bit about the the dinner and the cooking skills of, of the cooking staff and, and the important role that they play on the ship. Um, chapter 16, though, is is kind of interesting. This gets into the general training on board the military, on board naval ships. And the main th theory that Melville puts forth here is essentially that the men resent the training. Now, this is training about, like, shooting off cannons and stuff. And it's once in a while they'll be roused and told they have to do this training and do these exercises. And it's, it's almost comical if it wasn't tragic at the end. We learn how tragic this is, but it's, it's kind of a comedy of errors. The officers are silly during the training. It's hard to take seriously. The, the sailors are forced to do this, drud this kind of drudgery work of, of, of practicing shooting up the cannon. But at the end of the chapter, we learn that like, people die during these training sessions. And Melville doesn't think they're really that important or, or useful. Um, to actually improving the military preparedness of, of the ship. And the fact that, I think in this, this case, three people died, right? Um, and others were injured during, during the, the training exercises. So it's not an insignificant amount on a crew of 500 to have three people die just on a training exercise. And it seems that was a very common, common occurrence. In chapter 18, Melville returns to this question of diversity, and he's got a chapter called A Man of War Full of the Fools and Nut. And here's what he says about just the, like the diversity of people who are there. Quote, Indeed, from a frigate's crew might be called out men of all callings and vocations, from the backslidden parson to a broken-down comedian. The Navy is an asylum for the perverse and the home of the unfortunate. Here the sons of adversity meet the children of calamity. Here the children of calamity meet the offspring of sin. Bankrupt brokers, boot blacks, blacklegs, and blacksmiths here assemble together and, and cast away tinkers, watchmakers, quill divers, cobblers, doctors, farmers, and lawyers compare past experiences and talk of old times. Wrecked on a desert shore, the man-of-war's crew could quickly found in Alexandria by themselves and fill it with all the things which go in to make up a capital." And wonderful, wonderful uh, quote there, and, and really true to life, it seems to me. Um, maybe like a, a carnival. It's the same kind of mixture of people nowadays. You know, I think we need that diversity, and I think sometimes with specialization, where we're, we spend too much time with people who are kind of alike, and maybe, you know, there's probably fewer and fewer spaces like this in which, you know, all these people, failures and re rejects and people from different classes all end up kind of in the same mess together. Militaries might still do that to a degree, but, you know, hobo communities during the Great Depression maybe had that, that kind of feel too. So that's, that's nice stuff. Uh, Melville then talks about sleeping conditions and the overall health conditions, and he comes... On chapter 21, he kind of gets to actually politics and, and demanding Congress do something about the health and comfort of sailors on the ship. The sleeping conditions are quite horrible. They have 18 hours or 18 inches width on their hammock before they're bumped up against another man. They, don't, they have a lack of sleep. The watches interrupt full sleep, and this all leads to a shortened lifespan for many of the sailors. Um, and then there's a few other bits that Melville talks about from here and here and there, but the the first hundred pages, the first quarter of this of this novel, ends with them approaching Cape Horn, and, and we get a nice window, a picture of Cape Horn. Uh, it's danger, but this was the only way to get across to the Atlantic from the Pacific in that direction. So it was, it was something they had to brave, but the geography there made it very dangerous and, and stormy, 
and at a risk. It's also very cold, right, because it's at the pole. And in, in, in summertime, if it's summertime in the northern hemisphere, at Cape Horn, it's going to be like the depths of winter. And so they're facing that. They're facing winds, and you have to pass through that narrow place. It's, it's, a, it's a passage. And as we're going to talk about, I think, yeah, in the in next episode, there's a moment where after this adventure around Cape Horn, Melville talks about Cape Horn as, as a metaphor for life, that we all have that in our life. We, we have those hard points. Young people look for, like, see it in their future and fear it. And then old people can look back at it and, and kind of reflect on the challenges they had in their life. And it's, you know, I think that's a good sign we have that Melville's not just talking about a, a, a military ship here. He's talking about existence and life and, and the whole world system that, that he's, he's critiquing. So anyways, um, a lot to think about in the first 100 pages of, of White Jacket. It's a really fun and interesting novel to read. It, you can read it as a, almost like a nonfiction reportage of, of life on a, on a merchant ship, lightly fictionalized. Or you can try to read it as, as a novel. It feels kind of like Taipei in that way, that there's a lot that seems to be drawn from, from life. Um, but even less of an adventure story than, than that one. Um, so uh, I guess that's all I'm going to say about this. If you read White Jacket and have your own feelings about about it, please leave them below, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would love to, to read your thoughts, and, and especially to fill in anything that I didn't focus on or anything I missed. The Melville's writing is always so rich and, and dense that, that it's likely I neglected a few things. So please let me know what you think is important that I didn't talk about. Next time, I'll just look at part two of the second 100 pages of, of White Jacket, which will take me through chapter chapter 47. So it'll be chapter 25 to 47 if you're reading along um, for next time. So as always, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with part two of my review of White Jacket. At last there came a Yankee skipper away. Flipper